Log Talk Radio. more traditions of astrology 
and to have a greater impact than Valens, uh, who lived roughly about the same time in the same city in Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, Ptolemy is actually usually seen at this point as not being uh, part of the mainstream of the tradition, that, that he's seen as being um, a little different from other astrologers that were more ma mainstream, like Dorotheus and Valens. Uh, Ptolemy seems to be more motivated by uh, philosophical and uh, conceptual or theoretical concerns than by um, actual, uh, you know, practicing in the field and being motivated by uh, what he thinks makes the most practical astrological sense or what have you. So whereas Ptolemy will reject things like lots, like, uh, or Arabic parts, Valens includes dozens of them. So Valens, in many ways, seems to be much more representative of the mainstream of the Hellenistic tradition. Um, he had clients. He also had students and an actual school. So he was actually teaching uh, other astrologers during this period. And his textbook that has survived, the anthology, was actually supposed to be written for his students. And he, he actually addresses a few of them at various points. Um, so what's important about this, though, is that while Ptolemy's work got transmitted century after century and it kept getting passed on to future astrologers through either the text itself being copied over or through through translations of it being made, uh, Valens's text, while he was kind of popular with some of the early Persian and medieval astrologers or, or, or Arabic astrologers in the medieval period, uh, Valens, his popularity kind of died off after that point and Ptolemy was a little bit more important despite not being as representative of the mainstream of the tradition. So it wasn't until 1907 that the first critical edition of Valens's text was done. So this is the first time that somebody tried to get together all of the existing manuscripts that were written in Greek of Valens's original text and edit them or put them together into what's known as a critical edition, which is basically a reconstruction of what they think the original text looked like. So this first text was completed in 1907 by Wilhelm Kroll, but there was no translations of uh, the work that were done at that point. Even by 1986, almost a century later, a bunch of new fragments of Valens' work had been discovered uh, by academics working in the field of ancient astrology and magic. Uh, so David Pingree in 1986 created a new critical edition, which is basically just a new version of the Greek text with additional fragments included. Uh, even by that point, there were no translations of Valens uh, floating around, and astrologers were not familiar with the text. The only, the only astrologer who was talking about Valens by that point in 1986 was actually uh, James Holden of the American Federation of Astrologers, who uh, published a paper on basically pointing out how whole sign houses were the original form of house division in the Hellenistic tradition. And he also, I think, produced a privately circulating translation of Valens's, of book one of Valens, but um, up till that point, astrologers were basically completely ignorant of who this astrologer was, even though he's probably the most important source that we could have um, from that tradition. But then eventually, uh, in the early 90s, we had the formation of Project Hindsight by Robert Schmidt and Robert Hand and Robert Zoller, and Schmidt, one of the texts that they started translating pretty early on was Vedius uh, Valens. Book one of Valens was translated by Schmidt in 1993, I believe, and over the next seven or eight years, until 2001, Schmidt uh, would crank out one or two volumes every 
year or every few years. Um, Schmidt only made it up to book seven, though, which he published in 2001, and there's actually nine books of Valens' anthology. So while people in the English-speaking world have had access to Valens' uh, books one through seven of Schmidt's translation for uh, 10 or 15 years now, it's not until basically two days ago that we've had access to the entire anthology, including books eight and nine. So what happened is there was a scholar in the named Mark Riley who in the early or, or sorry late 80s started studying ancient astrology within an academic context and he published a few papers on uh, Valens and Ptolemy. He actually published a really important paper in 1996 that gave a sort of survey or overview of Valens's anthology and he tried to reconstruct the chronology of Valens's life based on some of the chart examples that he used and some of the predictions that he made for those chart examples which helped to narrow down um, when you saw clusters of these examples together it helped to narrow down uh, that certain books were composed during certain decades and that there was sort of this uh, development. He was basically able to show that the anthology itself was not complete, uh, those nine books were not something that was just written from start to finish during one period in Valence's life, but instead they were probably separate isolated books that were sort of put together at some point, but they were written over a long span of two or three decades during the course of Valence's life. So Mark Riley, apparently during this period in the mid-90s, actually produced a preliminary translation of the entirety of Valence's text, but he didn't publish it. And from what I can tell from his work, because I've, I've followed some of his papers for a few years ago, he seems to have basically gotten out of the field of studying ancient astrology sometime around or just after the mid-90s, and his interests moved on to other areas. Uh, so it appears that he just had this translation of Valens sort of sitting on his computer from that period that he completed. It's a, it's a complete translation of all nine, nine books of the existing text of the anthology from ancient Greek, um, but he never cleaned it up or finalized it or published it. I guess his interest just shifted. But then a few days ago, um, another scholar who just started looking into Valens uh, read a footnote that Riley wrote in one of his papers that said that he had completed a preliminary translation. And so this scholar, uh, Roger Pierce, sent an email to Riley, and then Riley sent him a full PDF of the whole translation, which Pierce read and really apparently enjoyed, and then uh, Pierce suggested to Riley that he should publish the entire paper online, since he had already published all of his other papers uh, on ancient astrology online. And apparently Riley agreed, and then uh, two days ago now, on, I guess it was December 14, 2010, Riley published a full translation, a PDF that's 500 pages long that contains all nine books of the anthology. Uh, he's posting it on his website for free. Anyone can access it. I actually have the link in the description uh, for this show, so if you, need, if you want to look that up, you can. Uh, otherwise, if you go to HellenisticAstrology.com and go to the blog, you'll see a link there for it. So Riley's published this full translation, and now um, basically everyone has access to the anthology. Up until this point, although Schmidt had done his translation in English of books one through seven, those have been out of print. The originals have been out of print for a while now, and they never 
reprinted new ones. Um, there were some scans, I think, that somebody at Project Hindsight was selling for a while, but um, some of the reports lately were that those weren't being sent out. So it wasn't like people had wide access to these texts up until a few days ago, and now all of a sudden we have the entire thing. So some of the questions are basically what does this provide us and what, what's in the anthology, how is this different from Schmidt's translation, um, how does the translation compare to other translations. At this point, there's been a few different translations of the anthology done. Um, there was a French translation of book one that was done in the late 80s. There's Schmidt's translation of books one through seven, which were meant to be p preliminary. And then there's a German translation that came out in 2004, although that German translation was criticized uh, by another academic named Stefan Heilen, who's working on a, a translation of or edition of Rhetorius right now, and he says that the translators didn't understand the astrological concepts or something to that effect because they're classic scholars. Um, so there's a few different translations that we have to compare to compare it to. The primary one, of course, is going to be Schmitz because Schmitz Schmidt is the only person who at this point has really sat down and focused on the language of the text and took it seriously that perhaps there was something to the astrology and, and not just the philosophical portions or the cultural sections, but also the techniques were important. That was sort of the attitude he adopted. And as a result of as a result of that he was able to perhaps understand a lot of the significance and understand the techniques better than someone who um, didn't think that that material was important. Um, so that that's probably going to be one of the questions uh, from this point forward, which is how much is Schmidt's translation more accurate when it comes to the techniques um, versus how much is how much is Riley's translation accurate when it comes to the technical vocabulary and some of the difficult sections that sometimes require a bit of interpretation. Um, so far, I'm actually pretty excited because Riley's version of the text actually pre presents a very unique and, um, well, in many respects, very similar since they're both translating the same text. Um, there's a certain amount, uh, degree of interpretation or judgment that goes along with translating ancient Greek, and some of Riley's choices are actually insightful, and it gives you a different perspective on the text from what I've seen so far. Um, I'm especially excited about some of his, his rendering or his translations of some of the philosophical and biographical digressions that Valens has in the text. Um, Valens frequently will interrupt a sort of discussion of a technique, and he'll start talking about his own life, or he'll start talking about uh, his philosophy of astrology, which is usually um, basically usually stoic digressions about fate and about what the purpose of astrology is and so on and so forth. So some of these, those were the most interesting pieces for me that I sort of latched onto or, or went to read immediately upon reading or, or getting Riley's translation because um, I was curious to see how he would render them because sometimes just uh, the difference of how you translate a certain word can really change the meaning underlying an entire phrase. And so far one of the things that I think Riley definitely has going for him is that his background in classics seems to give him a really interesting uh, spin on the translation of some of these philosophical segments. Um, 
and so far there's certain passages that I actually feel are clearer than some of the same philosophical passages in Schmidt's translation. Um, on the other hand, there's certain technical passages which seem to be clearer in Schmidt's translation um, and, and not as clear or straightforward in Riley's translation. But this is still something I'm, I'm working on, so I'll be interested to hear if anyone has the same impressions once they read through the text. Um, so one of the things that's interesting, I, I wanted to give kind of an overview of there's probably a lot of people who are not familiar with Valens' work or familiar with the anthology, and I wanted to give kind of an overview of some of the highlights of the different books so that people who are uh, reading this for the first time will have some sort of guide as they try and get through it. Um, unfortunately, this is a preliminary translation that's not, this is not a fully polished or necessarily even finished work. This is something that he did it seemed as a sort of working copy as he was writing some of those articles, some of those biographical articles on Valens. Um, so, for example, it doesn't have uh, chart examples or it doesn't have diagrams when Valens will give a chart example. Um, the footnotes and other commentary are almost non-existent, so you have very little help in understanding some of the more difficult passages. He just has the translation and there's no uh, commentary. I'm hoping at some point in the near future I'll probably start working on this next week for my students of my course to do a sort of audio or written commentary on different parts of the anthology in order to help unpack some of the dense uh, sentences and paragraphs uh, in different sections and explain why they're important or what Valens is saying. Because sometimes that can be kind of useful either to read it with somebody else or to have a guide as you go over it and you're trying to understand some of the uh, statements that he's making. So, so with that, I wanted to give a little overview so people know, perhaps if they have certain interests, where they might want to get started or where, where they might want to look uh, if they're looking for certain things or just because it's largely unformatted so that they know what books contain certain uh, topics or certain treatments. So book one is important primarily because it gives the significations of the planets from Valens' perspective. Um, he's probably drawing on an earlier so source named uh, Toyker of Babylon, but he basically gives the, all the significations of the seven visible planets. Uh, some of these are similar to modern significations. Some of these are very different. Um, I will caution people that I, I've been working on a basically a translation of these significations over the summer, and almost every single signification in this list has the potential of multiple interpretations or alternate translations. Um, and what I've been doing is actually going through and uh, trying to translate each signification, but then also listing each alternate possible signification that could be for each, each one of them. Um, this can actually get tr kind of tricky. Sometimes there's up to four different translations of a single signification, and um, all of the translators that have translated the text at this point have come up, come to a different conclusion about what it means. So as you read through that, uh, keep that in mind because there's a certain judgment call uh, that comes about in picking a certain translation convention. But it can be useful to compare Riley's translations to Schmidt's translations or to uh, the German translation or the French translation. So book one starts off with the significations of the planets. Book two has the signs of the zodiac and their properties. Uh, or, sorry, chapter two. 
chapter three goes into the terms which are sometimes called the bounds or confines. These are the Egyptian terms, uh, probably from the Chepsum Pedasiris. Um, there's a lot of other stuff, but the other important thing in book one is that at the end he has delineations of when the planets are, uh, either two planets are in the same sign or three planets are in the same sign. Since this was conceptualized essentially as a conjunction, when two or three planets are in the same sign, they're delineated as if they're conjunct. Book two starts off with talking about the concept of sect and a technique that we call the trigon lords of the sect light or the triplicity rulers of the sect light, you might say. This is sort of a an eminence technique that's used to determine what Valens refers to as the, the basis or the foundation of the nativity. Um, this section's interesting because it's actually the first text to associate the triplicities with the four elements. Um, prior to this point in Dorotheus or Manilius or Manetho, they don't seem to associate the four elements of fire, earth, air, and water with the triplicities. Instead, they associate the triplicities with uh, winds and directions. So this is kind of important because it's the first time it shows up in the text. That's not to say that Malin's necessarily invented it, but um, it's sort of a historical milestone to see that showing up there. Uh, book two is also useful because it has delineations of the, the 12 houses or places. It also has information about the lot of fortune and spirit, uh, lots of a lot of treatments um, or extensive treatment of those lots. And there's also some other lots, like the lot of exaltation and the lot of bosses. Uh, he has a ton of example charts in this book, and he also demonstrates a bunch of different topical approaches for different things in a person's life, like if you want to study parents or children or travel or what have you. Uh, book three is primarily focused on the length of life technique. Uh, this technique is basically the same one that all Hellenistic astrologers used and then all subsequent medieval astrologers who were following the Hellenistic astrologers used. They basically all used the same technique. I think it probably came from Nechepso and Petasiris. Uh Petasiris in particular gets associated with certain portions of that technique, which are basically... It basically has to do with primary directions and directing uh, a predominating planet until it hits the rays of malefics. Um, so this portion has sort of Valens' approach to that technique, uh, and he deals with the topic of the length of life for most of that book. Um, at the end of the book, it's interesting because he has one of his usual sort of biographical digressions, and he actually says that he wrote this book for his students, and he, he apologizing for not having the chance to revise it um, to make the book more accurate, but he was having some problems with his eyesight that were making things difficult, and then he was also going through some sort of emotional turmoil uh, as a result of having lost one of his favorite students. Um, this digression is one of the reasons why people are fascinated with balance and why he's such an interesting and kind of endearing character because it's this guy, it's this astrologer from almost 2,000 years ago, about 1,800 years ago now, who, he was an astrologer who was practicing astrology and teaching students, and he was just a normal human being like you or I, um, and you can really relate to him. There's something that, there's something about Valens that you can sort of identify uh, in yourself if you're a, just a modern person or especially a modern astrologer. Uh, who deals with some of the same things. He uses his own birth chart. Um, 
at one point in Book 7, he has this famous passage where he was on a boat, and he seems to have, the boat got into a, there was a shipwreck, and he seems to have gone around after the shipwreck and collected birth charts of everyone that was in the shipwreck so he could see uh, what happened and what that looked like or what the indications were for that in their charts. So Valens is actually engaging in a sort of normal empirical research that most astrologers engage in. So there's something very um, personal about Valens' work, and that's one of the reasons why it's so interesting. Uh, book four is when things get very interesting. This is the book that primarily deals with the Time Lord techniques or chronocrator techniques, and this is where he really takes that subject up um, to its fullest extent. He deals primarily with three techniques in this book. The first one he outlines uh, the Project Hindsight people refer to quarters or quarters of the moon. The second technique is zodiac releasing, and the rest of the book, starting with Chapter 11, is on annual perfections, uh, which sounds kind of weird to have the rest of the book be on that topic, except Valens actually has this very unique and complex approach to annual perfections that isn't used by any of the other Hellenistic astrologers. Uh, all the other Hellenistic astrologers have kind of a basic method, which is the one that got inherited in the medieval and even some of the early modern traditions. But Valens's method is much more complex and, in certain cases, convoluted. And that's why he actually spends not just the majority of Book 4, but also large portions of Book 5 and 6 uh, talking about this advanced approach to annual perfections. Um, in fact, he's so enamored with it that at the beginning of this chapter, right before he starts talking about perfections, he actually swear he asks the reader or requires them to swear an oath, uh, basically promising to keep the teachings secret and not to share them with those who are not the, basically the uninitiated. And this is where um, this is actually a section that's very interesting to me, and it comes up a few times because he actually asks the reader to swear three oaths, or there's three different places where he makes the reader swear this type of oath uh, to keep the teaching secret. Um, and it seems to relate to some sort of mystery tradition that existed in the Hellenistic tradition, um, and that some of the astrologers were actively engaged in uh, keeping their texts secret or private within certain schools. Um, I don't think Valens is unique in this because Firmicus actually asks his reader to swear an oath to keep the teachings secret as well, specifically to keep his books secret. So this seems to be something that was sort of widespread or that was done uh, amongst several major astrologers. Now, that actually makes Valens' text all the more interesting because not only is it the longest and most detailed text from antiquity, but it was also supposed to be secret. This was a hidden text that was circulated uh, in privately in a school of students. And then at some point, probably around the 5th century, uh, it got leaked. And that's the only reason we have it today is because somehow this text got outside of its school and then was passed on and copied for generations after that until the 20th century when the tattered and very disheveled fragments of the text were put together by uh, a handful of uh, academics or a handful of scholars in the 20th century. 
just two days ago, this secret book from 1,800 years ago just got released for free, and now everybody has the ability to read it. That's part of why such this is such a big deal, um, because this text itself has a very long and sort of checkered history, and there's a, a bit of sort of mystery and intrigue surrounding it. So he asks the reader to swear an oath. He deals with annual perfections. At the end, he has a bunch of delineations of perfections when certain stars are perfecting to other stars. Um, in book five, he has sort of a mishmash of some different information. Uh, the highlights are, in book five, he has some interesting information on the nodes, which he seems to treat very negatively because they're associated with eclipses. Um, he specifically says that for inceptional charts or for elections that you shouldn't um, uh, do an election when the moon is in the quadruplicity of the nodes, uh, especially when it's closely square or opposite to the nodes. So this gives you some idea of the Hellenistic approach to the nodes, at least in Balance's personal experience. Um, there's also a strange procedure, and it's one of the only times that this is discussed in the Hellenistic tradition for doing the solar return chart. Uh, I think this is in like chapter three or four or five. He talks about the solar return chart, and this is frustrating because we don't have any texts that survive from the Hellenistic tradition that treat this topic very extensively. Uh, this passage from Balance is probably the most extensive treatment. And basically what he seems to say is that you... You do the normal solar return chart, and you use those planetary positions, but in order to determine the solar return ascendant, you actually do the, you calculate the lunar return that comes just after the native's birthday. And whatever the ascendant is when the lunar return goes exact, that will be the solar return ascendant, or, or that will be the ascendant in your solar return chart. So that's a really interesting p procedure that not a lot of people have um, used at this point or researched um, and obviously it's not one that got transmitted since I don't think that shows up in a lot of other authors um, towards the middle of this book he has this really famous passage where he calls astrologers soldiers of fate uh, it's this really famous stoic passage that has strong uh, philosophical and especially stoic undertones and I think it's one of the strongest, that passage is one of the strongest arguments that one could use that Valens's primary um, philosophical background was Stoic. Um, yeah, and there's some controversy around that. Um, there's one scholar, Joanna Kamarowska, who wrote a book on Valens a few years ago that was published in 2004. It's called Vadius Valens of Antioch and Intellectual Monography. And she argued that Valens's background was sort of a mixture of uh, Stoicism, Neoplatonism, and Hermeticism. Um, and she actually uses a passage in Book Nine in order to question Valens's Stoic tendencies. Um, so that's actually uh, something that's very interesting because now we have the ability, with this full translation of Book Nine, to sort of read some of Valens's additional philosophical statements and see if that changes any of what we already know about his positions. Um, as it turns out, I think that the statements in books 8 and 9, if anything, just reaffirm 
uh, Valens' Stoic sentiments. Um, but I actually liked the way that Riley, um, Riley phrased some of his translation of these passages. Uh, so I'm going to read one of them very briefly. This is the famous Soldiers of Fate passage, uh, just to give you a sense of how Riley translates it. It's from uh, page 209 of his translation. He says, uh, But those who have trained themselves in the prognostic art and in the truth keep their minds free and out of bondage. They despise fortune, do not persist in hope, do not fear death, and live undisturbed. They have trained their souls to be confident. They do not rejoice excessively at prosperity, nor are they depressed by adversity, but they are satisfied by what, with what other, whatever happens. Since they do not have the habit of longing for the impossible, they bear steadfastly the decrees of fate. They are alien to all pleasure or flattery and stand firm as soldiers of fate. Um, so that's a... I mean, Schmidt basically rendered that passage similarly. Schmidt is almost a little bit more poetic and less broken up uh, than Riley's, but the essential meaning is still the same, and this is something that actually gets reiterated later in Book Nine, uh, so I'll come back to that later. Uh, let's see. So towards the end of, also in Book Five, one of the other highlights is he, he has a bunch of additional methods for annual perfections and a bunch of uh, modifications of his basic approach. One of the things that's interesting about this book is he has two chapters where he talks about monthly and daily perfections, except the procedures that he uses for determining the monthly and daily uh, time lords are not the same as the ones that most uh, medieval astrologers or other Hellenistic astrologers use. He has these weird uh, lot-like procedures for determining the lord of the month and the lord of the day. Uh, this is actually still something I'm waiting for somebody to program so that we can do more some actual extensive tests of this technique to see how it actually pans out and works in practice. So everybody should email Kurt Manwaring of, of Delphic Oracle and tell him to program those methods that Balance uses for monthly and daily perfections into his program, uh, Delphic Oracle, so we can actually test it out. Uh, book six, moving on to book six, he has some uh, interesting discussions about odd topics like the colors associated with certain planets and also an ex interesting discussion about sort of philosophical discussion about why the malefics always seem to have more, seem to be more prominent or active or powerful than the benefics. Um, and he actually draws on his previous discussion about color and says that uh, it's because uh, the malefics in some way the way that we perceive them kind of overwhelms things. And he uses this color analogy of if you put a blot of black ink on a piece of white paper or something that's white, then the black ink sort of takes everything over and, and it sort of eclipses everything else. Whereas if you, if you take a blot of white ink and you put it on uh, some black sheet or on a, in some black ink, then it sort of just becomes diffused and it sort of lessens... Uh, the darkness of the black, but it doesn't erase it, whereas the black kind of overwhelms the white color. So he has these interesting analogies and sort of philosophical analogies and observations that he shares during the course of Book 6, uh, and a lot of that's kind of interesting. Um, 
also in book six, he talks about the other time lord system, other time lord systems such as decennials, uh, which is familiar to some medieval astrologers. Uh, book seven is interesting because it kind of stands alone, and I think Riley and Kamaraska agreed that book seven probably was originally published on its own or in isolation because it seems to be this sort of isolated unit. It starts off with another uh, oath or curse, and it also ends with another oath or curse. So it has this nice kind of bookmark at the beginning of and the beginning and the end. Um, it's almost entirely focused on this one advanced timing technique that has to do with the planetary periods and the ascensional times, and specifically taking fractions of those in order to determine the activation of certain planets. Um, he has a lot of quotes from Nechepso, probably more than any other book, and these quotes are probably the best source that we have at this point for studying the, the language and terminology used and trying to reconstruct or get some idea of what the original Nechepso and perhaps Pedestiris text originally looked like. Uh, some of these excerpts in Book 7 of Valens are probably the best shot that we have of really understanding what that text looked like and, and how it was written. Uh, this is also, speaking of Nechepso and Pedestiris, this is a funny um, book because this is the one in which he actually directly complains about Nechepso and Pedestiris, and he kind of throws up his air, uh, arms in the air at one point and says that uh, either these guys didn't know what they were talking about or they were purposely being um, cryptic or uh, or um, riddling in order to hide the truth. Uh, I think he ends up siding with the, the latter opinion because he actually in other parts of the book, continually refers to how the ancients wrote in a cryptic and riddling manner. And Valens really seems to have seen his job as trying to explicate this and trying to um, trying to open this up more and explain what the ancients meant. Um, at the very end of book one, he actually makes a statement that kind of sums this up. Uh, he says... According to Riley's translation at the end of book one, he says, The ancients wrote about this topic darkly and mysteriously. Uh, we have cast light on it. Um, that statement, he actually ends up repeating, not the exact statement, but something similar at many different points in the anthology. Um, so it seems that that was really what Valens thought he was doing, was he was unraveling the tradition that he had inherited and trying to make it less complicated or not make it less complicated, but also make it more accurate. Um, book 8, which is one of the new books that is now available to us and wasn't available uh, in a full translation completely, is primarily dedicated to this complicated length of life technique that Valens got from Critodemus. Um, he has some philosophical and biographical asides or digressions, like usual, um, but for the most part, uh, it's all devoted to this, this specific length of life technique. Uh, and this technique's kind of interesting. It apparently was transmitted to the medieval, some of the medieval astrologers, because there was an article I read uh, a couple years ago about how the, the tables that uh, are in the manuscript were actually translated into Arabic. And then one of the manuscripts that contained the tables for this technique uh, that was translated into Arabic was actually 
written in gold ink uh, because it was considered to be so important or so valuable. So this seems to be an important technique. It's one that no one's reconstructed at this point. So uh, Riley actually omits the tables at the end. Somebody's going to have to go through and uh, reconstruct those tables at some point, or at least translate them based on the reconstruction that Pingree and Kroll did in their critical editions. Um, one of the biographical asides that I found interesting in Book 8 that kind of confirms some of the things that were kind of implied earlier in the anthology or in earlier books that were already translated is this passage on page four, 406 of Riley's translation where he says, um, Therefore, if you find me speaking very often about my generosity and openness, please forgive my words. I suffered much, I endured much toil, and I was, in, I was cheated by many men. I spent money that seemed to me to be inexhaustible because I was persuaded by mount, mountebacks and greedy men. Nevertheless, because of my endurance and my love for systematic knowledge, I outlasted them all. If my readers recognize the accuracy of these systems, they will give us praise with delight. Others, because of their stupidity, will envy and malign us, and they, will, and they may be exalted by the illumination of mystical and secret things, and they will steal some procedures from my compilation. So on such men I've placed dire curses, which I think they will suffer. Um, so this is interesting. I'm saying it, it confirms what was suspected from earlier or implied in earlier volumes, because it basically says that, for one, like Valens did in some way conceptualize the three oaths that he gives at various points in the anthology as curses for those which he specifically says in the oaths for those who disregard his name to the compilation, to his text, uh, it seems like part of the purpose for the oaths that's made explicit here is that Valens was really paranoid about his books sort of floating around in wider circulation with somebody else's names on them. And it se this seems to confirm that that was an actual experience that he had at some point, that he found his text somewhere without his name on it. Uh, so that seems to be one of the primary purposes of his oath or curse that he puts on certain books, like at the beginning of Book 7 and the end of the same book. Um, but it also shows that he sees himself as somebody who's reconstructing um, and trying to understand the older systems and to make them accurate again. So book nine, the last book, is sort of a hodgepodge of a bunch of different stuff. Uh, it's not clear that all of the chapters in this book belong at the very end. Some of them may have gone, uh, may go earlier in the text. Um, he starts off, or, or one of the high points, or the most interesting points, is that in one of the early chap chapters of book nine, he talks about derivative houses explicitly, and he actually gives some delineations of what the seventh house is relative to the fourth house or, or what the tenth house is relative to the fifth house or what have you. Uh, he provides a bunch of delineations and then within that context, just after those delineations, he seems to outline what can only be described and what has been interpreted by Schmidt and others uh, up to this point as equal houses. Um, the problem with this section or the problem that um, last night when I was going over it with Demetra George that we noticed is that the text 
right at the end of this this discussion when he just has just outlined equal houses and starts almost discussing the implications is all of a sudden the text becomes corrupt and there's this break that occurs towards the end of the paragraph where he starts talking about some other subject all of a sudden and it looks like some delineation material from another section suddenly um, got inserted or gets inserted into that section. So this is a really crucial um, passage or chapter because throughout the entire anthology, Valens clearly and almost unarguably uses whole sign houses, except during the length of life treatment where he uses a uh, form of quadrant house system, uh, qu quadrant division, like all of the other astrologers do when they use the length of life technique. That was the period, or that was the point at which they would all introduce quadrant houses, but only within the context of that technique, usually. Here, Valens seems to be using or introducing equal houses for the purpose of doing derivative houses for some reason. But then, right at this critical moment, the text becomes corrupt, and that's the end of the discussion. So we don't know what is going on here. We don't know if this is Valens uh, introducing something new at the very end of his work. Um, we don't know if that's true, then why he didn't introduce it earlier, and especially since this would seem to contradict and... Um, sort of render a lot of his earlier chart examples to be wrong or relevant if um, he just now at the end of his work uh, introduces equal houses, even though he's used over 100 chart examples up to that point. There's this sort of question about why he would introduce it that late. Um, so, if, or, or we have the option that perhaps this is some sort of interpolation. At the end of Book 9, uh, Riley has some passages that are, are said by the editors to be 5th uh, century interpolations that were sort of added to the text later on. Somebody updated some of the tables that were originally included in Valens' anthology. So this is an important chapter, an important passage that I'm flagging for people to take a look at and study and start debating about because it has important implications for uh, the study of ancient house division and actually the the application of house division in a Hellenistic context if uh, equal houses were in some way supposed to be used together with whole sign houses. Um, let's see, besides that, after the equal house discussion, uh, there's a chapter on another Time Lord system. This is the the nine-year system ascribed to Zoroaster. Uh, I think this is actually in Delphic Oracle. Um, I think years ago, somebody actually wrote an article in the Mountain Astrologer talking about this system and quoting this exact passage from a translation that Schmidt provided to him uh, for the purpose of that article. So uh, I can't remember the name, but if somebody figures that out, they should let me know and I'll, I'll post it. But somebody has already experimented a little bit with this Time Lord system, but I don't know of anyone else who's done much with it. Valens basically outlines the system as he got it from apparently Zoroaster's uh, texts ascribed to Zoroaster and then uh, introduces the little modification of the technique. So that's another time word system out of many that has some potential for study. Uh, so hopefully some people take that up and start looking into it. Um, also in this book, he has a short chapter on decumbiture charts, and 
if the material in Dorothea's undercomputer charts is an interpolation of some sort, which it may or may not be, um, then if that's true, then this would be the earliest discussion of the subject in the Hellenistic tradition. Uh, if the Dorotheus material is not an interpolation, then this is simply the probably the second oldest discussion of the de decumbature charts uh, in the Western astrological tradition, as far as I know. And then finally, um, the only other thing to really point out in book in chapter or in Book 9 that I wanted to point out. There's lots of other interesting stuff, but for me the other interesting point is in Chapter 12 he has a really important philosophical digression. And this is actually the section that I mentioned earlier where that scholar who wrote a book on Valens, she actually spent a lot of time in her book focusing on this digression and a specific statement that Valens makes at one point uh, about fate being a sort of a bad master of some sort. And Kamarowska uses this passage to argue that Valens can't be a Stoic, or at least he can't be fully Stoic or consistently Stoic because he seems to be conceptualizing uh, what's being imposed upon him by fate as being bad somehow or, or being negative. Um, the actual... Let me see if I can find the actual passage. It's actually on page uh, 451. And he makes a statement basically about uh, fate being a, a bad master and that the it's just like uh, if he makes this analogy between a slave who knows better than, than a bad master. He says, uh, just as an intelligent slave of a bad master knows his master's character and his daily behavior, and therefore he does his duties in an orderly manner, he does not contravene the master's orders and in acting thus, he considers his station to be free from pain and suffering. Uh, in the same way, I do not view my service as labored and strained. I have abandoned all vain hopes and thoughts, and I have kept the laws of fate. Um, so he's still adopting a thoroughly deterministic position, basically, that there's nothing that one can do about fate, and that in some way astrology informs you about that, informs you about what your fate is. But... Uh, he, he's conceptualizing that as being negative in some way, or, or at least there's some way in which he's talking about that that seems to be not the exalted Stoic position that held that ultimately everything is good and fate is part of providence and the uh, development or the application of fate to people's lives is a result of some sort of positive providential development that ultimately leads everything to some good con or positive conclusion, um, which is the, the context in which he talks about it earlier in the anthology, certainly in Book 5, but here he almost seems to adopt a more negative approach. So there's some room for debate here about what this means within the context of Valens's Stoicism. Um, I think within the con broader context of that passage, I was not surprised, but I was sort of... Um, glad to see that it's still, I, I still, despite Kamarowska's arguments, it seems like you could still make a pretty strong argument that Valens is essentially stoic. He's just not uh, the most consistent philosophical thinker in the ancient world, which I think she says in a little bit more negative terms, but I think that's kind of important to, to underline, that some of these, not contradictions, but inconsistencies in Valens' thinking are because he's 
fundamentally an astrologer who's dealing with clients on a day-to-day basis and dealing with some of the vicissitudes of, of life and of the human condition. So if he, he makes this statement at this point in the anthology, I don't think that necessarily negates uh, some of the other more exalted or high-sounding uh, sentiments that he expressed earlier. So that's a kind of overview of the anthology and the contents so that, that people can use to sort of uh, take a look at both books that have already been available uh, through earlier translations that are now freely available to everyone, but also uh, what some of the high points are of books 8 and 9, which uh, have just been released, and many of us are just uh, studying in, in their entirety for the first time. Uh, there's certainly a lot of information here. There's a lot of techniques that still need to be worked out, uh, even though people like myself and uh, Demetra George and Alan White and others have worked with some of these time lord techniques, such as uh, zodiac releasing or quarters or uh, annual perfections. There's still other techniques that um, need research and need uh, attention like the nine-year system attributed to Zoroaster, or uh, somebody needs to reconstruct the length-of-life technique from Critodemus from Book 8. So there's still a lot of work to be done, but this is a very important and exciting development because now, basically, the majority of the uh, pivotal texts from the Hellenistic tradition are out and are available in translation in, in one form or another. Uh, basically, the only ones, the only one that we're missing at this point that's really significant is uh, Hephaestio Book Three, which has a lot of material on uh, electional astrology. But aside from that, we've got the majority of the important texts at this point, and so now it's just a matter of reconstructing the history and the practice of Hellenistic astrology. Um, Myself and several other people have been working on that for uh, several years now, and it's kind of exciting that now uh, a lot of these texts are out there and are available for others to read. So other people don't have, you know, there's no more excuses for not reading some of these translations and familiarizing yourself with um, the techniques therein and, and some of the history of astrology. Um, I, my, personally, I've found, and I think a lot of people that get into Hellenistic astrology have found that there's actually something that's tangible and useful um, when you read these ancient texts. There's actual techniques from 1,500 or, or 2,000 years ago that are just being rediscovered today that actually still work uh, in charts in modern charts and nativities, and you can make very specific statements about a person's life, about the nature and course of a person's life, and especially their future, just by uh, reading these texts and applying some of the techniques therein. Now, it's not easy. There's a lot of work that still needs to be done in the reconstruction of these texts uh, and in the some of the, the techniques in particular. Some authors are a little bit cagey or a little bit unclear about how to presents or how to apply certain techniques. Uh, Valens does his best to uh, explain how to apply zodiac releasing and annual perfections, but um, there's still stuff that I've found in the past few years that Valens doesn't talk about. So even 
as we revive some of these techniques, there's still going to be new things that we can find, and there's still new discoveries to be made. Um, so it's a very exciting time uh, to be a traditional astrologer because basically the most important, what I think we could easily say is the most important text from the earliest tradition of horoscopic astrology just became available for free to everybody uh, about 48 hours ago. So um, take a look at it. Uh, I think that about wraps it up for this show. Uh, I guess we didn't have any uh, call-ins tonight, but hopefully uh, in future shows we'll have uh, more people calling in to ask questions and we'll be able to have more of a perhaps a dialogue about um, perhaps either the contents of, of Valens' anthology or other texts that uh, are coming out or, or that people are working on today. So I guess I will wrap it up and, and end it there. So thanks for listening to the show, and uh, I will be back probably next week, hopefully with an interview uh, with a astrologer who's working in the field of, of traditional astrology. So thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.